Well, I am actually pretty excited this morning, and it's not that I've had too much coffee, I, which, you know, I do drink too much coffee, but not this morning, because I'm, we here at Grace, we preached through a book, and I have the privilege this morning of speaking at the beginning of John chapter 5, and it isn't very often that the Lord shows me, or any of us for that matter, something new and fresh in familiar texts. We have a familiar text to many of us this morning, and the Lord really showed me something as I was preparing that I really hadn't seen before, and I'm pretty excited about that and sharing about that. Plus, we're going to have an opportunity uh, to spend some time in seminary. Um, now, if you're like me and you weren't spectacularly in love with school, I will try to make that interesting and informative. No, I'll try. I'm going to. That's my plan. The scene described in the beginning of chapter 5 is only in John's gospel. It is the healing of a lame man at, 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 at the pool of Bethesda, and it is a count of the third of seven miracles and seven signs that are found in the gospel of John. And those signs were, the, were provided for the Jewish leadership to authenticate that Jesus was God's son. He was the promised Messiah. Now, you're not supposed to ask people how old they are, so I'm going to flip it around and, and maybe get away with this. How many of you are younger than 38? Show of hands. Oh, good. More than half of you. Now, imagine your entire life not being able to walk. Completely lame. That's how many years the man that Jesus meets in our passage this morning had been suffering. A physical condition that we will see mirrors his spiritual condition. And the incredible way that Jesus gently met this man's needs and addressed the misplaced priorities of the Jewish leadership as only he could. Our primary takeaway this morning is, is a challenge, and it's probably on the screen, hopefully it's on the screen, and that is for us to have eyes to see. How can we have eyes that see beyond the obvious and see people the way that Jesus sees people? Let's pray and get into our text. Father, I am grateful to have the privilege to come up here and, and, and share from your word. I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak through me and... Um, and do as only you can, um, meet people in their need as we, uh, and as we continue in this Advent season, looking forward to what you have in store for us and your arrival on Christmas Day, for I ask it all in Jesus' name. After this, after what? The healing sign that John covered last week, the healing of the Jewish official's son, and the second sign that was noted in verse 54. After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we have moved back to Jerusalem. We're no longer in Cana. Verse 2, by the sheep gate in Jerusalem, there was a pool called Bethesda in Hebrew, which has five colonnades. Within there lay a large number of the sick, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there, and knew he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? Sir, the man said, uh, the, the sick man answered, 
I don't have anyone to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. But while I am coming, someone goes down ahead of me. Now, I've brought this up before, and it bears repeating. If you have not watched The Chosen, the, they, the, the series in the fourth episode of the second season does a really, really credible job of reenacting this. Yes, there are some liberties taken with narrative and such, but it is really, really well done. One of the first subjects, the first-year subjects in seminary is a subject entitled hermeneutics. It's a Greek word. They love using Greek words in seminary, I can tell you that. And it means the methodology of interpretation. And there is so much that goes into the interpretation of Scripture. And we're just going to touch on a little small portion of it. But our passage this morning gives an example of exactly how important that can be. You may have noticed on the screen that there was an asterisk between verses 3 and 5. If you were reading along in the NIV, it was one of the very first modern English translations to drop the end of verse 3 entirely and verse 4 completely. Our first hermeneutic this morning is that NIV isn't actually a translation. If you read that Bible like I did for many years, it is a paraphrase not a word-for-word translation. And why is that important? Well, it's important to understand what the translators were doing when they produced the English version of whatever it is that you're reading. Because if you're like me, the NIV is really easy to read. But it is not a word-for-word translation. Now, if you are interested in um, exactly what was missing there, the NIV has a footnote, and the text that was 3B and 4 might be on the screen here, but the gist of the controversy boils down to this. The manuscripts available when the King James translators did their work included texts not found in older manuscripts discovered since then. So the KJV Greek transcripts, transcripts were from the middle 1500s, worked on by a fellow named Erasmus. The manuscripts we have today are much older. They're literally from the mid-fourth mid century. Hence the reason for the asterisk. And if you're interested in pursuing this further, I've provided a couple of links in the app to kind of get you going on that kind of study. So back to our text. The scene of our text takes place at the Sheep Gate on the north side of the city. There's been debate over the centuries as to whether these pools, and by the way, there were two of them, um, that whether they were for actually for ceremonially, ceremonial washing of the sheep prior to their being sacrificed at the temple or for people to wash themselves after journeying to Jerusalem. Again, I invite you to Google that, Google Bethesda Pools. There's some really fascinating history over the last couple of thousand years regarding the pools at Bethesda. So Jesus approaches the man who had no use of his legs for 38 years. He's unnamed. This is consistent with John because he didn't really give, he didn't give us the name of the woman at the well. He didn't give us the name of the Jewish official. This is just John for having you focus on the individual, individual person. Jesus approaches the man, and did you notice what Jesus did, what he said? Do you want to be healed. 
Now, does that strike you as odd? I mean, today, if you cannot walk, you have options. You have lots of options. Miss Ann has a motorized wheelchair, and I bet that if I were to go over there and ask her, if she had the opportunity to walk, despite her wheelchair and the, and the, and the way she can get around, I'm sure she would grab at it. But this is the first century. And Jesus understands that for nearly four decades, this individual couldn't walk. And let's presume for a second, because we don't know this, let's presume for a second that's from birth. So he had only one means to provide for himself, and that was to beg. So Jesus was being very, very considerate here. Without, he wasn't presuming that this man wanted to be healed even though Jesus came onto this scene and he was, his intent, clearly, as we see in the text, was he was going to provide a, a miracle. He was going to do something miraculous and provide a sign to the Jewish leadership there. But he didn't just use this man. He asked him, do you want to be healed? This is another case of the remarkable generous and consideration that Jesus demonstrated through his, throughout his entire earthly ministry. One easily overlooked. Because just like our salvation, just like your and my salvation, God doesn't force you to believe him. He doesn't force on himself upon any of us. He just consider it. He just Because by the way, but if, if God did that, that would contradict scripture. Because in Hebrews, it tells us that we have to believe that God exists because without faith it is impossible to please God. So Jesus came upon this man and asked him, do you want to be healed? The man's answer, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirs. So in other words, yeah, I'd like to be healed. Verse 8, get up, Jesus told him. Pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man was well. He picked up his mat and started to walk. Now, that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. It is illegal for you to pick up your mat. He replied, The man who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. Who is this man who told you, Pick up your mat and walk? They asked. But the man who was cured did not know who it was because Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Jesus tells the guy, get up. And if he had just said, get up, and left it at that, he would have provided the miracle, he would have provided the sign that the Jewish leaders needed. But that's not what he did. He told the man, pick up your mat and walk. He didn't come onto this scene just to heal this man, and he didn't come to simply check a Messiah to-do box. Third sign, got it, check. That's not what he was doing here. First, the sign. Jesus had just healed a man who had spoken with just a word. No stirred waters, no extracurricular 
abracadabra, none of that. And what the Jewish leaders, what were they focused on? The fact that the man was carrying his mat. Our being 2,000 years this side of Calvary, we might understandably miss the significance of what Jesus did here because by the time Jesus had arrived in Jerusalem, the Jewish people hadn't heard anything from God in over 400 years. So let that sink in for a second. We haven't even been a country for 250 years. I mean, English-speaking people came here roughly 400-plus years ago, right? It's a really long time God hadn't spoken through a prophet. The primary way that the Jewish people validated a prophet was speaking for Yahweh was through signs. There's a phrase repeated an awful lot in the Old Testament. It is, it will be a sign. If you, if you go ahead and search in your search bar in your Bible, you'll find that over 75 times in the Old Testament. And the most distinguishing aspect of a sign, it wasn't natural. A sign defied the natural order of things. And what Jesus did for this man was anything but natural. And they missed it. Whether it was because God had been silent for so long or something else, we don't know. But let's be clear here. The Jewish people were and continue to be devoutly religious. And part of any religious enterprise is zeal and devotion to the cause. I was listening to a book recently about hockey. If you know me, you, that's not surprising. But it was on Audible. And there was this exchange that took place in the book. And it should be on the screen, and I found it quite memorable, and I hope you do as well. Religion is between you and other people. Faith is between you and God. That's pretty profound, really. Pretty sim it's nice and it's very memorable, very short. Religion is between you and other people. Faith is between you and God. The skepticism of the Jewish leaders is predictably religious. They were the keeper of God's word. They were the ones who decided whether or not someone, what someone had said was from God or not. And we see this over and over again in the Gospels. By what authority are you doing fill in the blank? Or give us a sign. In this respect, the zealousness of the Pharisees is to be commended. I haven't said this in a while, but it bears repeating. I try my very best when I get up here to handle God's word very carefully. But anything that is said up here by me or John or anyone else who has the privilege to speak to you from up here should be tested against Scripture if it troubles you. I refer to it as being Berean, which is based on Acts 17.11, which says that the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they searched the Scriptures to see if what Paul said was so. Now, the signs that Jesus provided to authenticate himself to the Jewish people that he was, in fact, God's son, the promised Messiah, if the Jewish religious leaders at that time had been the slightest bit Berean, they would have seen that Jesus was doing exactly what God said 
that a Messiah or some spokesperson for himself was doing. But they couldn't see beyond their ceremonial laws or what we would refer to as civil law. It's civil law. And remember, Jesus himself said he didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Which law? Not the civil law, the ceremonial law, but the one that's found in God's word. And here we have Jesus intentionally forcing the religious authorities to make a choice. Cling to their precious religious form or acknowledge the sign he had just provided. This is the classic ethical dilemma addressed in my second favorite seminary class, which was ethics. The class explored the differences between the utilitarian ethic, which is essentially the basis for U.S. law and the rabbinic laws that we're, we hear so much about, or the ethic determined by God's word. It's a big word that they, that they throw around. They, like, they love these words in, in, in seminary. I can tell you, deontological. I had, yeah, spell that one. You know, I, you know, but that is essentially the ethic that is based on God's word alone. Now, I, really, I never had really thought about this, and I was taught in school, like many of you, that ethics was the basis for our moral choices, right? I mean, that's, that's essentially what ethics is about, is your moral choices. But it never dawned on me until, literally, it's, this is somewhat embarrassing, but it never dawned on me until I was, it was pointed out that there are multiple ethics out there, lots of them. Our text this morning is a vivid illustration of the differences. Religious form as defined by a group of religious leaders or religious form as defined by God's word alone. Now, keep that distinction in mind as we go back to our text. The man is confronted by the Jewish leadership. Can you imagine the, heals man, the healed man's emotional state? He had just been physically healed, and the buzzkill police come swooping in and start cross-examining him about what? You're carrying a mat. I'm not sure any of us would have done any better in that circumstance, because it's not in the text, because it's classically American, but he, uh, um, uh, the guy, you know, the guy, he, the guy who healed me, he said, pick up your mat and go. So it's, it's very Adam-like, you know, the woman, it's, you know, he's, he's doing anything he can to deflect. Well, you know, if you get in, in the crosshairs of the law, that can be uncomfortable. I mean, it, it, it can cause you to kind of in that moment, right? But the focus of Jesus, and by extension, God, is the individual, not the religious form. If a religious practice is inconsistent with God's law, Jesus never bothered to sidestep it. On the contrary, Jesus confronted religious error whenever the opportunity presented itself, which brings me to head, heart, and hands. John used a phrase last week that bears repeating. When we read about miracles and signs, God never asks us to check our brain at the door. I really appreciate that John said that because we don't say it enough. There's so much of this matters when, when it comes to um, whether it's 
uh, specifically the miracles in particular. You know, it starts right off, I mean, Genesis is loaded with these things that are, you know, are, are fantastic and easy to just go, well, you know, it's just a story. No, no. God doesn't expect you to check your brain at the door. And if you're at all like me, when I was a young man, I w- and I heard about these stories, I sat in church just like you, listening to these things. To me, I was thinking there has to be a rational explanation for this. There really has to be something that we can do to explain whatever it is that we just read or we just were told in Scripture. And, but I never realized at that very moment what I was doing was limiting what God could do to only those things that could be explained otherwise. It was some time before God opened my eyes to understand how much of what we declare inexplicable was previously prophesied sometimes hundreds of years before and that when they occurred, they happened exactly the way he said they would. So use your head. Be Berean. If something bothers you, dig into it until it doesn't bother you. Expect God to be God while you're doing that. Ask somebody, come to one of us and say, you know, I read this passage and I, I, I got nothing. Okay. Every one of us has been there at some point. Never ever think you need to be brain dead to believe. Heart and hands. They go together. We said our takeaway this morning would be eyes to see. For us to have eyes to see people the way that Jesus sees people. To see their eternal need, not just their temporary condition, even if temporary happens to be 38 years or more. I didn't mention it when we read verse 14 and looked at it because I wanted it to be my closing thought for you this morning. Jesus said, do not sin anymore so that something worse doesn't happen to you. Jesus had just set this man free from a physical bondage of at least 38 years. And up until this very phrase, there's no mention of his spiritual condition. When we ache physically, our heart aches. And we do pretty much whatever we can possibly do to relieve ourselves of the physical pain That is simply the natural order of things. And in this case, Jesus healed this man of his physical condition. Spectacular. I mean, that's great. That's what, I mean, that's the thing you want. You want, you want, you read that and you go, yeah, Jesus, that that was really terrific. But God had John write down for us that Jesus wasn't done when he had healed the physical. Jesus point blank says to this man, sin no more. And he adds the little caveat, so something worse doesn't happen to you than the 38 years of being lame. But just like the woman at the well, Jesus knew 
the woman's life. And he knew about her checkered past. He knew it. And I doubt that while it's not even mentioned what the sin was, the man probably knew because Jesus certainly did. As we approach Christmas, this is not a Christmas message, obviously, but let us be see beyond the physical and obvious and perhaps aggravating things that people do this time of year. It just kind of gets baked into the season. Uh, you know, I don't know what it is. Um, but we need to have eyes that see people the way that Jesus sees people. Sinners, just like this man, just like me, just like you. They're just sinners in need of some grace. I know that was true of me. Sinners need a Savior. They don't necessarily just need physical relief for whatever ails them. They need a Savior. So let us, me and you, be a sign to those around us that Jesus has healed us and we are doing our very best to sin no more. Let's pray. What a great passage, Lord, and I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for this opportunity to have hopefully whet the appetite of, of some folks by just touching on some of the things that we learn in seminary um, that validate and help us to see that your, your scripture is alive and and, and just as current today as it was when it was originally written. So I pray, Lord, as we continue our march to, through this Advent season towards Christmas Day, that you will keep us um, gracious and aware that folks are just trying to get on in this world, and they may not see right and wrong on the same basis that your word has defined right and wrong, and help us to be instruments of your grace. For I ask it all in Jesus' name.